In recent years, the landscape has changed substantially in the area of drug treatment for hepatitis C virus infection. Newer treatments are more broadly effective and have fewer side effects than older treatment options. This has resulted in much advocacy and efforts to get infected people treated. But is this drawing our attention away from the fundamental drivers of the problem? I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Tyndall, Infectious Disease Specialist, Professor in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia, and Executive Medical Director of the BCCDC. Dr. Tyndall has published a commentary in CMAJ considering whether some advocacy efforts may be misplaced when it comes to treatment for those infected with hepatitis C virus. Hello, Mark. Hi, Kirsten. Where are you joining us from today? I'm actually attending the International AIDS Conference in Vancouver. I have a beautiful view of the mountains. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak to us today. Could you talk us through the recent changes in the landscape of drug therapy for hepatitis C? So there's been a real dramatic shift, I'd say, in the past 18 months. I've been working with drug-using populations since the late 1990s, and hepatitis C prevalence by that time was already 60% in Vancouver, and there was explosive outbreaks of hepatitis C among drug users starting about 25 years ago. And treatment, interferon-based treatment, which was injectable um, weekly injections plus pills for usually a year was the only treatment we had to offer for probably 15 years. So I was involved in setting up some early hepatitis C treatment programs in Vancouver, but it was very difficult to uh, get people through the treatment, and as a result, very few people actually accessed it. And starting um, about two years ago, we began to see clinical trials that showed much improved outcomes with uh, oral therapies. And within the last year, they've been released in the U.S. and more recently in Canada. So now we have shorter course oral therapy that's highly effective so that um, we're talking in the range of 90 to 95 percent of people who complete therapy eradicate their hepatitis C. And I understand there are fewer adverse effects with the oral treatment. They seem to be very well tolerated. So it's it's a huge improvement over both the pills and the injectable interferon that uh, people had to take. Now, I I was involved in a number of courses of treatment, and with the right supports, people could get through the interferon treatment. And there was a wide spectrum of how people uh, reacted to toxicities from some people didn't notice anything till you know, and the other extreme, within a week, people had to quit treatment because they felt so terrible. So there was a, generally, it was a poorly tolerated, but most people who started it with the right supports did get through it. So improved treatment with fewer side effects seems like a really good thing, but it's expensive and you have some grave concerns. What are they? The fact that being that hepatitis C has been with us in this population for so long and that very few people were even offered treatment. And all of a sudden, we have improved treatment, and it would make sense. Well, why don't we just then get everybody treated? And there's been a real push now to uh, set up clinics and get physicians on side and to really line up people to get treated. And uh, the cost of the treatment is so exorbitant that I'm really 
concern that putting all our eggs in a in a treatment basket will is just really the wrong way to go at this time because really what's killing people and causing people to suffer and their life expectancy to be so short has nothing really to do with hepatitis C. We're talking about in this particular group of those who are newly infected, which is largely driven by IV drug use. Yes, there's a lot of studies going on in Canada to try to determine the uh, the risk groups. And there seems to be a proportion of people who, uh, you know, have been infected in the distant past without any acknowledged exposure to needles or injection drug use. But we we figure the vast majority of people who weren't infected through the transfusion system, which was a problem in the through the 70s and 80s, have contracted HCV through needle use. And when you say recent use, many of these people that I see in the clinic currently uh, probably were infected with hepatitis C 20 or more years ago. So there's still new infections happening, but um, there's a lot of people in Canada who have a history of drug use who have been carrying this virus for two or three decades. And I think you made the point that these people don't always die of hep C. They die of other problems, socioeconomic issues that we could be addressing too. The natural history of hepatitis C, um, we're still learning things, but we know that it's very slowly progressive infection. And in in the absence of other cofactors, such as uh, concurrent HIV, alcohol use, obesity, for most people, the infection is relatively benign. And when you're dealing with a population that has so many competing factors of, for death and already a very shortened life expectancy, they will not really run into any, tr- any trouble with their hepatitis. In your commentary, you mentioned two particular groups that you're concerned about, those who are homeless and prison inmates, and you say that they're being overlooked when it comes to HCV infection. Tell us why you want to draw attention to these groups in particular. Well, we know how the virus is transmitted, and uh, we know that uh, people with mental illness, homelessness, prison populations are disproportionately impacted by hepatitis C. And the focus in that group, if we're going to advocate for better health, it really shouldn't be focused on treating a medical condition that's likely not to have any impact on their on their health. My biggest concern, if we turn all our attention to try to medicalize what really is addiction, poverty, homelessness, mental illness into somehow a, a virus that we can cure, we're, we're kind of missing the, the big public health implications of hepatitis C. And the other group, the uh, prison population, who seem to be an obvious target for treatment, is you have quite a, um, quite a fixed audience, but... The fact is that we're not doing anything to prevent hepatitis C infection in prisons, so we have no harm reduction allowed in prisons, and that people, even if they're treated in prison successfully, um, are most often thrown back into the same environment that they got infected with in the first place, and uh, the likelihood of reinfection, I think, is is quite high. It's interesting that you say that because I think we don't have good data on reinfection rates or possibility for reinfection once successful treatment has been completed. Yeah, 
the clinical trials that show the the success of the treatment follow people up for about 12 months. And so there's no, none of the trials that I've seen presented even have any plans to follow people up. There's some observational studies that have been presented. The one that sticks out is from the UK where the reinfection rate was 25% after about two years. And we're still, you know, following people. But one thing we know about hepatitis C in drug-using populations is it can be very rapidly transmitted. So there's a lot of uh, epidemiologic research looking at injection drug-using communities who uh, went from essentially zero hepatitis C to 60 or 70 percent in a, a year or two. So it, if, the, if you eradicated hepatitis C from Vancouver tomorrow and just left things as they be, it would come back within a few years to quite high rates because it's so easily transmitted if we don't have very tight harm reduction and other programs for people who have addiction and mental health issues. Looking at the high cost of hepatitis C drug treatment, how much does it cost and might this money be spent elsewhere more usefully? I think that's the main point that I wanted to make. The drugs, when they were first introduced, came out at $1,000 a pill. And this was a, the first direct-acting antiviral that was also combined with interferon. And there was quite an outcry of that at that time that that was an exorbitant price to pay for a pill. And so a course of treatment would be about $85,000 US. And then the oral, the combination pill that included two new oral agents would be about $95,000 for a 12-week course of treatment. So there was immediate backlash that that seemed to be a lot of money, but that really has not, uh, has not sustained. And the advocacy really is not so much to lower the price of these drugs, but rather to gain access. And so it's true in Canada that there will be uh, negotiations and there's active negotiations going on now to bring that price down. But I think they'll land at somewhere between fifty and $60,000 a treatment. There is some hope that because there's probably going to be five or six different pharmaceutical companies involved in competing for these these drugs, which are really copycat drugs that other companies have picked up. So their, act, their action of antiviral activity is very similar. They will compete with each other, but we know from everything else in uh, medicine that it'll compete to a certain point, but there'll be a price point that the com- none of the companies will go below. So um, I would imagine that we're looking at Forty to fifty thousand dollars a treatment course at best, and if you put that into terms of what we could do with harm reduction and poverty eradication and treating mental illness and homelessness, we we could do an awful lot with that money. That would, I think, really make a difference in people's outlook and their health. And focusing on using our limited resources to just eradicate a virus that, for most people, won't cause them any clinical harm is, I think, mis- misguided. We're very limited in Canada with our harm reduction interventions. And these programs that uh, we know work are under extreme pressure from resources. And so supervised injection sites would be one example where one of the big criticisms by the government is, well, why we can't afford to do something like that. But it's a it's a, such a drop in the bucket if at the, at the one hand they're saying that and the other hand they're saying, oh, yeah, but we'll spend you know, billions of our pharmacare money on drug treatment. So uh, with them, that money, if we could even get a, 
a small portion of that could revolutionize the way that we uh, are able to intervene with, with people that are, are using drugs. It's really stark when you put it in those terms. Thanks, Mark, for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Tyndall, Professor in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia, an Infectious Disease Specialist and Executive Medical Director of the BC CDC. To read his commentary, visit cmaj.ca.